Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. It's the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Jory McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's podcast, it's your questions answered. Well guys, we're going to go straight into the questions and we've got one from at Fire and Blood FC. He asks, why do the Glazers still have faith in Ed Woodward? A very good question, Ian. Tell us what your take is. Good question, um, but very simple answer, and that is the balance sheet. Uh, Manchester United continue to make money, they continue to generate uh, revenue, and they continue to um, increase their market capitalisation value on the New York stock market um, month by month. And um, quite frankly, that's the reason why um, Ed um, the Glazer family are still um, in love with Ed Woodward, who, remember, was the investment banker who assisted their takeover of the club. So whatever Ed does um, is not seen as a, um, oh, sorry, I should say judged on a result of what happens on the field. It's judged as a result of what's happening in um, the financial markets. And I also, when, um, you know, this is a little bit cheeky, but when... uh, when the fourth goal went in at Goodison Park against uh, Manchester United in the match against Everton on Sunday, it occurred to me that Woodward may well have turned around to the Glazers and said, don't worry, this will give us much more hits on our social media channels than the fact that we've lost 4-0 and therefore increased our value <laughs> regardless of the fact that we're losing football matches on the pitch. And um, unfortunately, that is the way of things at Manchester United. And it's the culture which didn't really exist under... Sir Alex Ferguson when the Glazers were there because he was effectively omnipotent in terms of the way that he run the football department and transfers and the demands he made um, of the owners regarding investment in players and the fact that he was a football man who 75%, if not slightly more, got it right with regards to the players that he needed to make Manchester United successful. And what we've seen um, since his departure has been a football department run um, dysfunctionally because uh, Woodward has a final say on uh, the fees paid and transfer contracts completed. And he will do that on the basis of what he thinks is best for the club, not just as a football department and not just as a football club, but what is important in terms of financially. And by that, I mean the signing of players who have big social media followings, uh, players who have big commercial um, uh, attractiveness in order to um, sponsors, etc., etc., and marketability. And the Glazers look upon Ed Woodward as some kind of, I don't know, um, Wizard of Oz, 
in terms of the fact that he continues to make them money. The value of the club continues to increase. When in actual fact, um, if they were doing well on the pitch, then what they don't see is that the, 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 those two things would be increasing much greater in capacity than they are at this moment in time. Um, but of course, stability in business and growth in business is more important than taking risks. And the Glazers are not um, risk takers. They are adverse to risk. As long as the club keeps making money, it will continue to be um, an old boys club in that sense. And by that, I mean not in the football department, but in the boardroom, whereby the guys who are running the club, whether it be commercial director, finance uh, manager, uh, deputy uh, executive chairman, etc., etc. As long as all those guys are fulfilling the numbers that they're requested to do by the Glazer family, then their jobs are not at risk. They don't want their jobs to be at risk because they're very well rewarded for what they do. And it's a, case, it's a simple case of the old heads down mentality. You know, let's not put ourselves um, in any danger of losing our jobs, uh, regardless of what happens on the field. There's no one at that football club in the administration side of it who actually cares what Manchester United means. Uh, and that by that, uh, I'm saying that they don't care if Manchester United are successful as a team on the field of play. As long as they continue to get the numbers right, then that's why um, Edward will stay in charge. Duncan, if um, the Wizard of Oz is Ed Woodwards, then what is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in this Oz metaphor? <laughs> Sounds like you have an answer in mind, John. Go for it. <laughs> well, I know that Josie would be the um, the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> I think I think he'd be the Tin Man because he doesn't have a heart. I think the heart is the one thing he does have, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's the, he, he's got Manchester United at heart, unlike. Um, unlike the unlike the owners, unlike the owners. I mean, look, Ed Woodward studied physics, qualified as a chartered accountant, moved on to the investment bankers J.P. Morgan. The most important thing he did in his career was he helped advise on the takeover of Manchester United by the Glazer family. I helped them advise on a takeover where they bought uh, the most valuable club in. British football and managed to place all the acquisition cost of that club on the club itself. So leverage buyout, take them off the stock market, put the cost of buying them into debt on the club and get the club to pay off the debt itself. That was um, financial genius. It's made the Glazers a lot of money. He subsequently then became the commercial uh, chief at Manchester United and uh, was has led was led a project that was revolutionary in English football in terms of increasing the number of commercial sponsors, increasing the amount of commercial income. They're far ahead of any of the rivals in that regard. Uh, so he's continued to make the money. As Ian points out, the club makes a profit each year. The Glazers take tens of millions out in, in terms of dividends and also directors' fees. So from their point of view. It's a success. Why aren't they bothered about the football side? Well, they're not football fans, um, and I don't think they have yet to see the failures of the last six years since um, Glazer, uh, since Edward Wood was promoted to executive vice chairman, hitting the bottom line. Um, Louis van Gaal, I think, had it on the money. Um, <laughs> when he gave his recent BBC interview and talked about Manchester United not being a football club, but being a, a commercial club. Um, I think you just have to look at the makeup of the board. Um, as I've said on here, 
many times. Manchester United are, I think, unique um, in British football, possibly even European football, in that every member of their board had never served as a director of a football club before being appointed a director of Manchester United. So they have zero um, previous experience of running football clubs. Um, and it then becomes no coincidence that they cannot see uh, the, the huge pile of decision-making mistakes that Woodward has heaped one upon another uh, and continues to make. Um, and I don't, honestly, I do not see that changing anytime soon. I don't see, don't get a sense that uh, the Glazers are considering um, changing Woodward. Um, obviously, um, if they miss out in Champions League football this season, questions will be asked. Um, but I think the, the excuse will be the manager, um, probably along the lines of director of football. We have to give our new director of football time to work. Um, there is, there's no sense um, that, that Woodward is going to be removed from his position, which is ironic given that so many Manchester United supporters feel that would be a way of turning around the club's fortunes. We've got a couple of questions on the same theme. The first one's from uh, Jordan Hamilton. He's asked, why do Premier League clubs operate with what seems to be a lesser degree of professionalism in the transfer market? Why don't they fix it? And then the other question was from Ryan Harrison, who says, why do Premier League teams not do big business prior to the window in the same way clubs like Barca and Bayern have, with the examples given of uh, Frankie de Jong, and Hernandez and Pavard uh, at the German side. It's an interesting. It's an interesting question. It's a. It's a repeated theme. I mean, I've been working in this area for, you know, concentrating a lot in the transfer market for a decade or so. And you talk. You definitely you talk to people in football in decision making positions, um, scouts, directors of football, agents, and it is a common theme that they will talk about the inefficiency of the the English clubs, um, the you know the huge amount of money the Premier League has to spend uh, as a league far ahead of any of the rivals and distributed amongst the clubs in a more equal fashion. So basically, all the clubs now have the opportunity to make big buys by European standards in the transfer market. Um, they talk about things like. Premier League clubs being reluctant to take risks on players who clubs in other European leagues have identified as being talents, um, who they expect to be very valuable players. They say it's almost as though some Premier League clubs want to see them um, reach the 20, 30 million valuation before they're prepared to, to buy, rather than buy a player at 5, 10 million and develop them themselves. Um, and you know, I hear that also coming from from Premier League um, recruitment uh, specialists talking. You know, quite often, you have discussions. Kieran Tierney is actually a good example here. Um, Kieran Tierney, I think, will end up being one of the top defenders in European football. He's been scouted for a long time um, and, and identified as a player with the, the possibility to go to the you know the big the big six in England. But what I hear from people working for the big six is they want to see him go to a lesser Premier League club first 
and develop a lesser Premier League club and then they'll pick him up rather than take him direct and take a risk on, on signing him immediately. Um, and that is obviously inefficient, but I think it's also uh, one of the reasons for it is because they can. They've got the money to be able to afford to wait and do what Liverpool did with Van Dijk, which is um, let him go to Southampton from Celtic, uh, develop in the Premier League and then pay a world record fee for him and, and, and take the finished article. Um, and, you know, Liverpool are a good club to discuss here because Liverpool have probably done the best transfer market business over the last couple of years in the sense that they've had the most hits um, and they, from, from the money they're spending and have, uh, have spent a large amount of money on several players and seen them go straight into the first team, be consistent performers uh, and be very important to to making them challengers for the Premier League title. Not every one of them, but to have every one of your signings work that way would be almost unprecedented. But they are, you know, they, they are um, scientific and targeted in the way they work. Uh, and, and it's working well for them, but they're spending a huge amount of money to do it. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be forgotten that they outspent everyone in world football uh, in the last uh, calendar year, you know, from the, the Van Dijk window uh, onwards uh, and the summer window to get themselves in this position. So I think there is, there is a real sense that they're not as efficient as uh, the best of the European competitors. But a big part of that is because they can afford to be less efficient because they've got more money to play with. Um, and that, that leads them to kind of rest in the laurels a bit and do things that, that people outside the English game kind of laugh at. Um, Manchester United, a good example here in terms of having the biggest scouting network in European football, uh, paying uh, London headhunters uh, to create that network for them and, and hire their, uh, their scouts. Um, getting basically no return for it in the transfer market, having the previous manager not trusting that scouting department because they weren't coming up with good solutions and, and doing things like sending um, sending scouts to watch Iceland uh, play a friendly um, <laughs> in Europe when the game was actually taking place in, in the Middle East, um, making sort of base errors like that, scouting teams you wouldn't even expect them to be scouting in the first place because they've, they've spent so much money on this system and they've got to, they've got to justify um, the employment of so many individuals and, and, uh, and the, the accounts that go through the books at Manchester United. One of the reasons for this, in my view, is the lack of... Um, of specialised and experienced technical directors at Premier League clubs. This is a cultural problem which goes back to the formation of the Premier League um, and, and has continued to, I think, um, curtail effective recruitment um, from clubs uh, in terms of their scouting networks and the way in which they operate. The introduction of transfer windows has meant that Clubs um, almost stagger from one window to the other, um, waiting to the last moment. Hence, the creation of the amazing, uh, you know, phenomenon that is the transfer deadline day. Why would between twenty-five, thirty percent, and sometimes upwards of that deals be done for multi millions of pounds on the last day 
if your scouting network and your technical department stroke technical director were doing their job properly and therefore you had recruited, like you said, Johnny, Bayern Munich, two top-class um, full-backs uh, before next season even begins. And the reason for that is, well, one, arrogance, um, because the Premier League is uh, the West best-funded and creates the most revenue in world football, mostly through broadcast rights, as we know. And therefore, Premier League clubs believe that they can uh, cherry-pick players at the last minute, which has been proven to be their downfall because so many great players have gone to other clubs because they have um, effectively seduced those players and their agents and their families and courted them for months on end to um, persuade them that their future is with that club, whereas Premier League clubs tend to turn up at the last minute on an auction and stick their paddle up and say, oh, we'll have him for 20% more than you're willing to pay. And then, of course, the player turns out to be not the player that they needed, um, nor who was going to be effective in their club. So that's what, that's, a, that's one reason in terms of um, the, the reason that, that, sorry, the way that technical directors are not employed properly in the Premier League. And another is that um, such is the, um, the revenue generated uh, in in the English Premier League, that clubs are very risk averse, managers are very risk averse about playing anything less than a seasoned player who has proven himself in another league or even um, through three, four, five games in the Premier League, rather than choose to buy a younger player with huge potential who they can develop and who they can then integrate into their team. In a, in a way that we've talked about last Monday about João Felix at Benfica, um, a player who could clearly be, you know, the next Cristiano Ronaldo or such like. Um, they won't risk that amount of money um, on on such a young player because either winning the Premier League or making Champions League or indeed staying in the Premier League in terms of relegation is worth so much money that uh, operating what the, our um, listener called professionally in the transfer market becomes less important than making sure that you buy players who you are confident or know can actually perform in this environment, which is unique. And, you know, my experience is such that I understand um, head coaches and managers in the Premier League not playing young players and not buying for talent, but buying for experience instead because of the demands upon them. I do understand that, but it's not a sustainable method. It's not a sustainable model. You have to be able to identify talent at a, a younger age, which is less expensive, that you can then integrate and develop in your own team. And that way, you can create a, a future model which is going to be more effective and more efficient. And at this moment in time, the Premier League, the wastage in terms of transfer fees and contracts uh, in the last 20 years in Premier League players is probably 10 times that of other major European leagues because there are um, signings which are based purely on two or three performances for a national team or a, uh, a championship, whether it be ANC or uh, European Championships or World Cup. Or it's about a player who has done well in six months of a season 
in another um, strong league and they decide to buy him for an inflated price and oh what a surprise it doesn't work out he's not it's not become the player we thought he would be in our league so th- there are multiple reasons why um there's a lack of professionalism in inverted commas in terms of transfer uh negotiations and um deals in the premier league and they're all come back to one thing and that is the amount of money available i.e. there's not as much um risk associated with a player which doesn't work out because you can write it off to, well, it just didn't work out, rather than being held accountable, which every other European club is, with regards to saying, well, you know, you told us this guy was going to be brilliant for us and we paid, you know, 60 million euros for him and we put him in a contract worth the same uh, and he hasn't. And therefore, you know, that is a responsibility that you must bear. That doesn't happen in the Premier League. You know, we just write that off and say, well, it's just one of those things. England wasn't right for him, or it just didn't, he didn't, you know, become uh, attuned or uh, he didn't integrate into the culture and the, and the, the, uh, the way that we play football. It's just effectively written off as <clears throat> something which, well, it was bad luck. And it's not. Football's not a science, but it's, it's also something which can actually be harnessed and made to work. But at this moment in time, the Premier League does not seem either to want to embrace that nor feels that needs to. We should just say there's a couple of notable counter-examples in terms of doing deals early and that you do have Naby Keita um, going to Liverpool or being signed by Liverpool a year in advance, which is unusually early and, and probably you could argue risk-laden in itself in terms of what happens if he'd uh, had a, a serious injury during that period. Uh, and uh, Chelsea securing Christian Pulisic um, in, for the January, buying him in the January window, loaning him back to Dortmund uh, with the idea of having him come in this summer, um, uh, being aware that they were at risk of, of receiving a FIFA transfer um, ban, which they have now received. So it's not that the Premier League clubs never operate um, in advance, uh, but as Ian says, the tendency uh, amongst Premier League clubs is to leave things to the last minute. And there's, there are far too many deals happening on that transfer deadline day than there really should be if, um, if they the were better organised and better prepared. As a percentage, Duncan, of what is spent com- compared to what is done in advance, I think you're looking at under 10% of the actual gross spend in transfer windows to what actually gets done beforehand. And I, I agree with you about Keita. Pulisic, I think, was something which was Chelsea did because they know that Hazard's gone to Real Madrid <laughs> and also what you said about transfer ban. Um, so the player's been registered already and loaned back. So that's a way of getting out of that. But it's certainly the case that uh, compared to other European clubs, Barcelona in particular, in terms of the way that they've signed Frankie de Jong, um, Bayern Munich, as we already mentioned, and the way in which Real Madrid operate also, then English Premier League clubs are way behind. And so I think there's a, 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 you know, the reasons which I've already stated and referenced for that um, are there. But I do think it's because there is a wastage factor um, which does not apply to other European leagues, which we tolerate, which at some point will come to an end because people will be held responsible for that. Yeah, there's a, a remarkable amount of inefficiency, and, and I see that from people in the business commenting to me about the inefficiency of, of English clubs, Manchester United being um, an obvious example in terms of how long they take to negotiate contracts, not doing homework in advance. Talked last week about them not doing any preparations, and when they tried to sign Gareth Bale, 
uh, where Tottenham actually um, preferred to sell Gareth Bale to Manchester United and Real Madrid, but it didn't happen because they hadn't done any work with the player in terms of setting out the contract. David De Gea's famous um, failed transfer to Real Madrid. Again, Manchester United knew that was coming. Uh, the Kaylor Navas was going to be the replacement. Again, they did no work with Navas um, to set up the contract details until they had an agreement in place with Madrid to sell De Gea and take Navas in return as part of the deal. The delays over sorting out Navas's contract led to uh, De Gea's uh, documents not going through in time, both deals following through. Um, this is There's probably only one club, I think, who are very good and very efficient in the transfer market, and that's Manchester City. Um, where you hear people um, talking about how well they operate um, and how how um, good and professional they are to deal with when it comes to them purchasing players. There's and one comeback to that, Duncan, which is, of course, that if, if you watch that documentary um, that was on Amazon, they were not prepared to go the extra mile to get Virgil van Dijk because they felt he was overpriced at £75 million. Well, that's a... That's a that's a different aspect in terms of working efficiently with the clubs. Um, their analysis at the time was that that what Southampton were asking for Van Dyke was too expensive and they could take a medical port instead um, for a lower transfer fee. I think the wages with Laporte are pretty similar. Now, you can question whether they made the right decision. I think that decision was educated by Pau Guardiola, saying he preferred Laporte um, for his team because he thought he was a better passer. So then you have the calculation of we're bringing a defender in to, to help our manager. Our manager um, rates this one higher um, from an attacking perspective and he's less expensive for us to buy. Therefore, we decide to go there. But what, what I'm really talking about is in terms of preparation time and doing the homework and making those assessments and not getting rushed into decisions. Um, and, and essentially what the guys who are operating and doing the deals with them, how they regard Manchester City and the professionalism with which they work. Um, the contrast to clubs like Manchester United and the way people in the industry talk about them is huge. Now, no club is ever going to get all its transfer market decisions right. And hindsight's a wonderful tool, which we on the podcast use regularly. But in terms of um, basic operation style, Manchester City are very good at it. In terms of Manchester City, I think it, we should note that um, they have in place a very experienced technical director, uh, referencing the point that I made earlier in Chiki Bagheristan, uh, someone who uh, was renowned for scouting uh, properly through, obviously, a network, but, but and then uh, meeting um, up with representatives and players themselves and actually acquiring Barcelona targets when he was um, in the same position there, uh, far in advance of uh, any other club being interested and therefore agreeing prices with both um, a club and contract for the player, which were reasonable and um, for what they were getting. Uh, and therefore, when those players came into the club, uh, they were assessed based on their, their, their actual value rather than the value which was paid for them uh, should it be inflated, which is again something which uh what's the most asked question, you know, in the Premier League? Oh, 
are you do you are you scared that his transfer fee is affecting him the fact he's not performing at the right level or you ask the player himself are you affected by the transfer fee you never hear that question being asked abroad never happens um, very rarely I should say you know I think in Philippi Coutinho's case that has been asked but as we all know that was a very protracted negotiation with Liverpool which resulted in a, a fairly kind of hash bash transfer which now has proven not to be very uh, profitable for either the player or the club. But other than that, I think, generally speaking, um, European clubs get better value for transfers and contracts than English clubs do. Yeah, you're right. Um, having a, a, an experienced, capable sports director makes a big difference, and that's one thing Manchester City has. And we should, of course, mention the other thing Manchester City have is more money than anyone else, so that always helps in, in transfer market negotiations. It's all about the dollars. Right, we're going to move on to at JJ Dazzler's question. Um, he has uh, tweeted in saying, Solskjaer has acknowledged that the fitness levels of this Manchester United team aren't up to standard. But who is at fault for this? Is it the players? Is it the fitness team? Is it Mourinho? I, I should note that he doesn't add, is it Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Um, but what's your take on this, Duncan? Uh, I... I think it's interesting that Solskjaer is now blaming fitness um, on underperformance um, when he had emphasised the need for his team to outrun opponents and they're no longer outrunning opponents. I think if you're going to talk about fitness with Manchester United, you have to note the number of muscular injuries that the team has had, uh, the number of players who have been put out of action, not because of contact injuries, but because they have um, injured themselves in training or in matches um, and being unavailable for key games. I mean, we had that amazing, uh, I, something I've never seen in 20 years of covering football, the Paris Saint-Germain first leg where uh, Solskjaer lost Matic to a muscle injury before the game, wasn't able to field him and then lost two players before half time and Jesse Lingard, who was just coming back from a hamstring injury, um, lost him, I think about six minutes after he brought him onto the field, the first time he tried to sprint. So he played a, he, he had a player on the bench and used a player off the bench who clearly wasn't ready to play and put him out of action for several more games uh, because of that. Now, that's not Jose Mourinho's training regime that's responsible there. Solskjaer had been in charge of the club um, for several months by that stage and those injuries were being caused by the training regime that Solskjaer had put in place. Uh, Solskjaer's argument presumably will be the players weren't fit enough when he received them and therefore he had to put them through a second pre-season and get them fit enough for the, the rest of the campaign. And that did seem to provide dividends in that initial run of matches where he won 10 of 11. But we are now seeing, um, in terms of player availability and player performance on the field, and the manager himself saying the players aren't fit enough, um, and now saying that he needs a, a proper pre-season to get them sorted. We're seeing the results of Solskjaer handling them with his fitness techniques coming through. Um, if you want to talk about whether it's Jose Mourinho's fault, then the, the appropriate analysis to do would be to look at how Manchester United were in terms of injuries um, before he came in as manager. 
And I think it, he, if you recall, under Louis van Gaal, they, uh, I think they blooded four or five ac academy players in the space of a month. Um, academy players, some of whom have gone on um, and, and we've seen what their, their true standard are in terms of whether they were real Premier League players. The only one who has been a real find and, and it clearly is of um, the ability to play for Manchester United is Marcus Rashford, who was one of the later discoveries uh, of the players he brought in. But Van Gaal had to do that because his training regime was causing a large number of muscular injuries and, and United were notorious for having poor player availability um, in both of his seasons in charge. Mourinho then came in with his um, assistant manager, uh, Rui Faria, who's known in uh, football as being one of the top uh, fitness specialists in the game, who, who uses a, a different uh, approach to fitness training, which uh, is called tactical periodization, um, where one of the elements of it is that no work is done without the ball. All the fitness training is done um, while, while playing football, um, which has the advantage of you know, football teams have a limited amount of time to train. Um, instead of uh, telling your players to run or do gym work in part of that limited time, you combine football with um, high-intensity work in the training field to, to keep your players fit, which gives you more time working on the tactical side and, in Faria's model, keeps the players uh, fit. The proof is in the results. Um, Manchester United's availability, player availability, was far, far better under um, Mourinho Faria than it was with the preceding manager, Van Gaal, and it was far, be far better under Mourinho Faria than it is under the current manager, Solskjaer. If Solskjaer survives a whole season as manager with his pre-season as he wants it, with his fitness staff doing it the way he wants it, then we'll have another comparison. We can compare the, um, the Solskjaer player availability and injury rate to um, the Faria Mourinho rate. But what you can say is that Faria Mourinho are, are noted for having good player availability at every team they ever coached and, of course, winning a slew of titles um, using that methodology. So I think Solskjaer is on dangerous ground here. Um, basically, that's become his, his last excuse for this run of results. Uh, you know, he's gone from these players are amazing, unbelievable, to I'm not sure if some of them uh, care or not, and we're going to have a big overhaul. Uh, and um, and by the way, they're not fit enough, and, and I need a proper preseason for for you to see how I am as a manager. But uh, attacking the fitness of players is a common technique for managers. You often hear managers complaining about fitness when they come in. You often hear them talking about how they need to run more and how to outrun the opposition. Um, it's e it's an easy thing to say, but the test is: Do you get your players on the field performing for you? Do you get maximum out of them in terms of number of games they play, and do it does it deliver results? I have to disagree with Duncan on one thing, and that's you know I think Solskjaer's got one more excuse to make with regard <laughs> to why the players' fitness isn't what it should be, and um, sadly it's um, it's someone who is a you know a, an example to uh, everyone at Old Trafford. It's, it's someone who is an inspiration to. Um, kids who support Manchester United 
and clearly someone who's always there and omnipresent in Manchester United. Uh, and I mean that for the players who high-five this person every time they come out on the pitch. And that's Fred the Red, the mascot. Have you seen him? He's really overweight and uh, carries his strip really badly. Um, he also has a trident, which I assume is something to do with being Red Devils and wants to prod yeah, other Fred, players with. Fred's not here to defend himself. Chill out. Uh, I think Fred Tick should bear a lot of responsibility for the fitness regime at Manchester United. But yeah, in all seriousness, though, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> but, in not, all seri- but in all seriousness, it's, apart from it's just Fred not Ryan. utterly preposterous at a club like Manchester United. This is not Falkirk or Accrington Stanley, where it's a manager and assistant, and maybe if they're lucky, a goalkeeping coach who doubles up as a fitness coach. We are regime to regime. There could be differences. Surely, with the the, the size of their fitness machine at Manchester United. This is just nonsense, isn't it? Well, I'm glad I'm glad you recognise the irony of my analogy there, Johnny. Um, because it's entirely the case that the coach, uh, the head coach or the manager is responsible for the fitness of the players. Um, who else prescribes their fitness regimes? Who else looks at the uh, technical and scientific data that is produced and every single training session, every single match, regards to whatever player does, and we're not just talking about how far they run, which we've referred to in detail. It talks about tackles that they've won, passes they've completed, passes they haven't, interceptions they might have had or might not have done, goals expected, goals not expected, chances created. It goes on and on and on. Football science and data analysis is, you know, part of has become part of a huge. Um, uh, analytic sector in a sport which, you know, maybe 25 years ago wouldn't have known what even a heart monitor was. So um, if anyone's to blame for the fact that a team is not running enough or isn't fit enough, it's got to be the head coach because he's given the results of this analysis and data after every training session, after every game. He's given analysis based on what might be the case with a player. We've got algorithms and software now which can predict when particular players may experience a lull in their season because of their physical attributes, um, past biometric results and where you might think they'll be at a certain time if they've played X amount of minutes competitively. So there is no reason whatsoever for a manager to be able to say with any kind of honesty that oh, I think it's because our players are not running enough or not fit enough. That's nonsense because it's your uh, decision, your response and your responsibility to make sure that those players are fit enough to run harder and faster than ever and be able to compete with any other club, any other team that you're up against. So, um, as I said before uh, on Monday's podcast, I think Solskjaer is on a bit of a kind of um, thin ice here with regards to he's already um, blamed uh, you know uh, transfers, he's already blamed the, the, the manager past, albeit referentially and now he's blaming his players he doesn't have a lot of pl- sort of places to go here with regards to how he uh, either manipulates or navigates the situation he finds himself in and he needs to find something much more honest and forthright than what he's coming up with now and he's got a Manchester derby uh, to play 
on Wednesday night, in which if they lose, then Manchester City will win the title. If they win, then Liverpool will win the title, potentially. And that is obviously a Hobson's choice for Manchester United fans. I think he has to look after himself and ensure that um, they don't get um, overrun by Manchester City. He has to make sure that they put up a display which is, oh God, you say 10 times, but you probably want to say 100 times better than the one at Everton um, against Manchester City in order to somehow restore a sense of not just pride or um, uh, reality in terms of who they are, but in terms of giving the fans back something which they can believe in, that Solskjaer is the man to go forward with the job. Because otherwise, and I'm you know, not being mean to Solskjaer here, on the current run they're on, you know, I would not be surprised if he wasn't Manchester United manager by, by the turn of the year um, in, in 2020. So, you know, he has to do something and do it quickly. And whether or not that's in the next two or three days, certainly in the next two or three months, he needs to write what is wrong with that club and not blame other people. OK, it's time now for our Donkey Awards. And uh, as usual, what we're going to do is I am going to tell you the award. Ian's going to give us the nominees and Duncan will choose who gets his head superimposed onto an Oscar statue. Today's donkey is the Gary Neville Award for blood-boiling, barely-constrained fan fury. This, of course, a reference to his reaction to Sunday's defeat uh, for Manchester United at the hands of Everton. 4-0 at Goodison Park, and he was not a happy chappy. So, without further ado, Ian, get, get ripping that envelope. Thank you, Johnny. As ever, it's an absolute privilege and pleasure to uh, be opening the golden envelope for this Donkey Award. Um, the first nomination, I think, is uh, one of... Uh, Certainly the most kind of in-your-face, if you forgive the uh, the pun here, um, in terms of the donkeys. And it goes to Jamie Carragher, who, if you remember, last season was suspended from his job on Sky Sports for spitting on a young Manchester United fan uh, on the M62 on the way back from the game. Uh, I'll leave that one to Duncan to uh, give further credence to. Gary Neville, who becomes one of the first of our... Um, very, very sort of prestigious people to have the award, the award named after him, also nominated. And of course, that is for his uh, rant after the uh, 4-0 defeat by Everton last Sunday. And the third one, who I, I genuinely hope that most of our listeners will sort of comply with us here in terms of its term, uh, its re- reference point. Uh, we could say Brazilian commentators are like this, and we could say that other commentators are, but... In this particular case, we'll say that every English commentator or co-commentator who is English on an England game, when it's not going their way, tends to be that kind of Gary Neville stroke Jamie Carragher character who then comes into their own and either criticises or overpraises their team um, regarding their performance. So, Donkey, I hand over to you to present the prestigious award for this week. As ever, a very hard field to choose from. I'd, I would love to give it to Jamie Carragher. Um, I'd also really, really like to give it to, to Gary Neville. I think he deserves his, his own award for this because he was he was ranting about that team before the match and uh, didn't calm down any after the game. Um, but I think uh, uh, all our um, fellow Scots will uh, understand and actually all our um, non-English listeners who've ever 
been subjected to an English commentary team, um, particularly a World Cup or a European Championship, will understand that it has to go to the English commentators here. Not so much for when the team's doing badly. I think it's really is when they come into their own is when the team is doing well, uh, when those um, six goals are scored against the absolute minnows um, of a World Cup and uh, and uh, they go into ecstasy uh, and into the state of belief that they're going to win the, the tournament, which um, only ever gets uh, terminated uh, when they meet the team of, of proper ability who uh, promptly knocks them out. So yes, the English commentators get this award this week. Special mention to Mr Ian Wright on that front, who is absolutely impossible to live with. I just have to turn it down, stick on maybe the radio commentary, put on some nice uh, classical music or something like that. Bit Anything Vorjark, not maybe? to listen to. Dovrak, you mean? That guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Can we also mention as well, though, the justification of such things, Johnny, in that yes. both Gareth Southgate and Harry Kane received uh, honours from the Queen for coming forth in an international tournament um, in the last few months. It just shows you that in you know, there's there is a sort of sense of self justification um with regards to England's performances when they fail to win something becomes a success. Ember, it's coming home. To roost. Well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. Uh, if we've got any listeners left for uh, Friday, I'm not sure. Uh, but we will be back then to meet all your podcast needs, of course. To continue the debate, we're all on Twitter. You can contact us at Transfer Podcast. You can contact me at Johnny R. McFarlane. You can contact Duncan at Duncan Castles. And you can contact Ian at Garbozju. Or, as I prefer to pronounce it nowadays, at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by giving us a five-star review on iTunes. I know a lot of you have done that, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for getting on there to do that. Uh, it's a huge, huge help. So anyone who's not done it, please go on there and give us that five-star review. Until Friday, thanks for listening.